What up, world? Welcome to another episode of Architects, where we speak to the architects of art, the individuals shaping the culture of our past, present, and future, and challenging the way we think and feel about the world around us. I'm Tosh Critchlow. Today's architect is a brother to Director X and me. We all came up together at the School of Hard Knocks, the New York City music video world of the early 2000s. Back then, we were outsiders and not embraced by our peers. Not to sound old, but at the time, it really came down to our hustle and relentless need to excel. You had to put in the grind to earn your respect. Our guests grew up in the mean streets of West Philly, rapping with KRS-One's rap duo, Channel Live. He then moved to NYC to be an assistant director. As an AD, he worked with the godfather of videos himself, Hype Williams, as well as Paul Hunter and Toronto's very own Director X. This led him on his own 20-year directing journey, shooting music videos, films, and now television shows. He is known for working with legends like Nicki Minaj, Lil Wayne, Nas, 50 Cent, Snoop Dogg, Diddy, Meek Mill, Keisha Cole, and others. When I watch his work, I see his ability to capture street culture in an authentic way because he gives his collaborators the raw edge they need to keep their street cred intact. He has transitioned into television, directing shows, Black Lightning, All American, and the pilot episode for Empire. He has also taken up film and most notably directed the Tupac biopic, All Eyes on Me. Without further ado, let's welcome our friend and Philly's finest, Benny Boom. So Boom, you're born, raised. Now, were you born and raised in West Philly? What, what's the back, what's the story there? Like, I know uh, you're from Philly, but I'm not sure if you were born and raised in West Philly. What's the deal there? Yep, I was born, I was born at, uh, in West Philly at the uh, University of Pennsylvania Hospital. Wow. And then, uh, and uh, my parents had, um, my father had just gotten back from Vietnam. They got married at 18 or 19, something like that. And he, my father was a musician in this group called the Stylistics, him and his brother. Your father's and part he, of the Stylistics? Yeah. Wow. What? He, um, what? <laughs> how do we not know this? After how do we not know this, bro? After decades. After decades. Yeah, he was a founder. So they, they were, um, they had started the group in high school. And were managed by their English teacher. And um, wow. my, when my father graduated high school, they were playing gigs all over uh, South Jersey, Philly, New York. Like they were playing all over the place. And he got drafted. He was like the ninth of eleven of eleven children. So he was definitely going to get his. I think I forget what they call A one or whatever the the draft card is. So my parents, my uncle, my mother's brother had gotten in, he was like a hustler kind of guy, but he had gotten in on the management of the stylistics. And um, my dad came to see him one day at the house and he met my mother and that's how they, that's how they linked up. Wow. So, yeah. And so um, then they started dating and then his draft card came in. So they were trying to figure out how to keep him from going to Vietnam. And so they got married like really early. Like, I want to say 19. My father was 18 and my mother was 19, I think, or something like that. And then, um, and then, 
he went away for two years. And then when he came back, uh, before he came back, I think they got pregnant with me and then they moved back. They were in Colorado or something for uh, when he was done being in Vietnam. They still hold you in the army. Um, and you do your stuff stateside. And I want to say it was in Colorado or Nevada or something like that. And then I was born back home in Philly. And then they live with my mother, my grandmother in West Philly till they got a house and, uh, and the rest is history. And then they got divorced. <laughs> so, <laughs> by the time well, I was three, they were broken up. Well, at least, at least, at least your the mayor has got your father out of the, the war. So at least there was some good, this coming no, out of that. No, he went. Oh, no, 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 no. My dad, my dad w- w- went to war. Like he went, he went, um, he was there for, he did a tour um, it's interesting because my father's also a police officer after he came back. That's a whole nother story, but he, he came wow. back and became a police officer. But he, um, I would sit and talk to my dad and he would tell me all kinds of stories about um, police where, oh yeah, you know, we arrested this guy for murder and th- like all this stuff. And as long as I was alive, he never told me any stories about Vietnam, not one. I think one story he told me, his cousin, they were at a place where they would get supplies and the helicopters would come in and one day the helicopter landed and his cousin was was walking across to get supplies and they looked at each other and they were like, yeah, because they didn't know that they both were there and they hugged and stuff. And he said at that moment, he wished he hadn't have saw him because the whole time he was thinking like, man, I hope my cousin's okay. I hope my cousin's okay. And stuff like that. Um, so, um, what did I say? So he so um, he went, and then it wasn't until last year he wrote he wrote this letter to the VA because he's trying to get his um, some medical stuff is happening to him now at seventy two that people are connecting back to the war, mm. and in this letter he's describing his experience, and he sent me the letter, and man, it's crazy, man, it's so it's really crazy. Interestingly enough. Snoop's dad, Snoop Dogg's father was in Vietnam as well. What? And so the, yeah, and so the two of them talk all the time. Uh, my dad and Snoop's dad talk, they talk all the time. They connected over the whole Vietnam thing. And then um, they speak like all the time, like all the time. Cause he actually, my dad helped Snoop's dad get some, get some uh, stuff resolved with his issues with, um, I think Snoop's dad was wounded in Vietnam. Right. And still seeking some retributions and stuff like that. So my father helped him out with that and stuff like that. So, well, yeah, bro, it sounds it sounds like you got your next script on your hand right there, bro. I know, right? <laughs> I know, I know. You know, I know. You know your man, your man Spike Lee did that. What's it called? The Five Bloods. The Shit, Five got, Bloods. Yeah. Now you got the Two Bloods. You know what I mean? The Two like, Bloods, right? <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, man. Um, but yeah, West Philly, um, born and raised. Um, then moved all over Philly, and then actually, my father moved to Texas to Houston in 82 mm. and uh, I stayed with my mother and it was interesting because that was that was a very like tumultuous time for me because I felt like you know your dad is like 1500 miles away and doesn't care so then you don't care and at that same time it was a um there was a lot of gang stuff going on it was like the end like Philadelphia is interesting because it doesn't. It didn't have the gang culture the way that L.A. has it or Chicago had it. It's a very um, block per block kind of situation. And right. so, if you live in a certain radius of a few streets, that's the crew that you are with. So, and it wasn't as organized 
in, in the early 80s as it was, had been in the 60s and stuff like that. And so um, when uh, I was around 12, I think, I was being like bullied and recruited into, into the gang stuff. And these were not like, I was 12 years old, but the kids were like 16 and stuff. So there were, in their mind, they didn't see the difference between you being 12, being out in the street and them being 16. If you was outside, you were outside. Right. So, so one incident happened and um, I had this baseball bat and I came down the stairs and I whacked the guy on the, on the shoulder with the bat. And my mother heard about the incident and she was like, this, you, what is going on? I'm like, you know, trying to act like, Oh, nothing, you know, this, and she was like, no, that's not, that's not acceptable. And then of course, mother's like, well, I'm gonna go outside and no, no, no. <laughs> you, you stay inside. So I don't need us for you to come outside and fight my battles. Um, so th- another incident happened where I had uh, she came home and I had all these knives laid out on the on the kitchen table because I was about to go. I was about to go get busy with this dude. This like so she came home and the knives were laid out and she was like, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, and she was, and she was really scared. So she called my dad and she said, look, this, I can't be here all the time. He needs a man in his life constantly. You said, you know how Philly is like, he's not going to make it. And so he said, all right, send him to me in the summertime. So I kind of stayed out of trouble into the summer. And um, this was in 84, 84, something like that, 83, 84. And uh, then I went to live with him in Houston for a couple of years. That's wild, yeah. bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Crazy stuff. And from there, now, moving to Houston, living with your uh-huh. pops, finding out, getting that father figure, when did you mm-hmm. decide, okay, time to go to school? And from, my, from what I read, you studied film at mm-hmm. Temple University. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? And and going to school for film, was this something that you just chose? Is this something your parents kind of pushed you to or were they not supportive? Like how did studying film become a thing for you? Well, um, um, well, I initially, you know, I played football. So that was my, my dream was to be a football player. That's oh, wow. really what I wanted to do from, because. You know, it started at Pop Warner. You know, we in our neighborhood, the neighborhoods had, along with all their gangsters, everybody was on a either played basketball or football. So I played football from maybe ten years old. I mean, organized football where we had practices and teams, and each air each neighborhood in the city had its own team that represented um, the the you know the team. So um, when I went to Houston. One of the main reasons why I was excited to go there was because it's Texas and football was was king. And so, yeah, it was the culture. So when I got there, it was a culture shock because, to be honest, like, you know, I was a decent size, but I got there, man. And it was kids that were 14 years old. that were like 6'2", 200 pounds. And I was like, whoa. And they had already been lifting weights and, and like really massive and stuff. So there I sort of got into that world of like really lifting um, really learning how to really play football and stuff. And then I got injured and broke a hand and broke a shoulder. And then it just kind of all went out of me. Um, I eventually moved back to Philly um, 
I was a runaway actually because my father and I had gotten into it and I ran away from home. And what he How told me was, did that? Uh, I was 15 years old. I was 15 years old and uh, we had gotten in a serious fight. Um, and my mother, I told her, I said, look, I want to come home. I, was, I hung out at a friend's house. And it's interesting too, because in Houston, everybody was, um, I didn't really connect to the people down there. I connected to people who had moved in. So all my friends were either from New York or most of, most of them from New York or Los Angeles that had sort of moved. There was all this like subculture of kids that had moved in. So my best friend had moved in from the Bronx and he was, uh, he was Guyanese and Dominican. <laughs> so his mom, I would eat dinner at his house all the time. So in any event, she, they gave me shelter that night. And I was making all the phone calls to my mom, to my aunt, and all the stuff. So my aunt bought me a plane ticket and um, the plane ticket to come home. So I stayed the night over there. And my dad went to work, so I went home. My sister was there. I gathered all my clothes up and put them in a bag. And then my my boy's mom and him took me to the airport, and and I went home. I went back to Philly, and it was it was crazy. <laughs> because when I left, I had been back for the summers, but I didn't realize what was going on. But when I left, it was um, it was just kids' street stuff. You know what I mean? But when I came back, those kids that were into, like, the street gang, these kids had money, cars, dope gut. Like, it was a whole different world. And, I, and it was a big shock for me to come back into that because I was living in the suburbs in Houston, you know. So... Um, it was, uh, so I kind of got into the books and stuff. I went to Overbrook High School. Will Smith had just graduated from there. Oh, cool. um, uh, Steady B was there. Cool C was there. These are two, like, famous rappers from Philly. So it was like the neighborhood high school, but it was like the Howard University of, of high schools in Philly because it was like, they called it the fashion school and all this, and all the girls and all this stuff like that. Uh, um, the gang, uh, like, the, the big drug gang in Philly was called the Junior Black Mafia. And so they would have cars parked in front of our school every day, Mercedes and 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 um, uh, BMWs and Nissan Maximas were big back then, like all parked in front of our high school. And so all the girls would come out and these guys would pick them up. These are grown men picking up girls from high school. Like when I think about it, I'm like, yo, that's just it's crazy what was going on. So in any event, I, I worked and um, got accepted to Temple. Um, I got in a little trouble in the street and and didn't go to school when I should have in 89. I was accepted, so I would have started in the fall semester of 89, but I didn't go. And I was in a bad, I got myself in a really bad situation in the neighborhood. And so I remember my uncle telling me, he's like, yo, you got a, a acceptance letter here from Temple. It's like, what are you doing? You should go to school. Right. So I had to re sort of matriculate into the school Went back, I went to it in, in, the, in the spring of 1990, took a few classes just so I could matriculate into the system and then started in the fall of 90. And um, I went into the film program, the radio, TV. It was communications was the big school. So I knew I wanted to study African-American studies because it was the only college that had a PhD program. So all the professors were like, you know, these were the, it was the, the best 
professions in teaching that. So I did that in communications as a double major. So here it is now. Mm-hmm. When you're in Temple and you're studying and learning about filmmaking and the mm-hmm. history of film and communications and stuff, you know, we all know, like, the, I took a communication class and we learned about Orson Welles and, mm-hmm. and uh, Citizen Kane and stuff. But I guess personally, what was it, what, like, what films and shows and books or whatever inspired you and got you, like, really thinking about world building and storytelling Right. As you're now studying and really getting a, a deeper understanding of the world of cinema and our the film industry, what are some of the movies that really like opened up your mind and, and inspired you and really opened you up? Well, um, at that time, it's interesting because uh, most of the professors at Temple at, the, at that time, they were all it was a group of professors that were like these um, documentary filmmakers. And so. I remember um, this one professor, uh, I think his last name is Ambandos or something. He was very, he was very well known in the documentary world. And so they, um, they pushed all of the, all of the the classes towards the documentary of it all. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. and this is, this is over 30 years ago, but the classes weren't really geared up for like screenwriting and they are now, but originally because of who the who started the program and how it was sort of created, it was very much created by these like abstract thinking professors. So I remember at the time I was really radical and I did this um, I did this piece about the uh, last poets and the revolution will not be televised. And so I had I just myself and like three other people on the campus. We went around campus and I shot this thing where we all had these black ski masks on. And we went around and we had posted up all these things. I can't remember exactly what it was, but the idea was that um, hidden amongst us on the campus, because there was some racial stuff happening at the time. So hidden amongst us at the campus, there are these, um, there's this group of like new Black Panther kind of people that are underground. And so I shot this sort of like, uh, this thing that was, it was a, it was a warning in a way and and it was just like call to violence and stuff like that. And then at the end of it, the, I just remember at the end of it, I get home and the camera's on. It was almost like a selfie. I had the camera set up just like this. And I take the mask, the mask comes off and it's me, right? And then I had also had a scene with me in the class with the professor. You know, it was just, I can't remember exactly how it was, but the idea was that, you know, I'm hidden amongst all this thing. Right. So I show this thing in class. And um, the students were like, <laughs> now you got to remember, this is 1991. They weren't ready for so that. They're like, looking around, they, none of them had ever heard of The Last Poets. And I got this, the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. Do, 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 right? And they just, they never heard of it, nothing. And the professor gave me like a D. What? A D. And and I'm I'm not gonna front. It was dope. <laughs> like, it was dope. But it was almost like a, it was almost like for me, like my first music video in a way, because right. I had put all the images to this last poet song. So I get this D and I just remember coming to him and I said, Why am I getting a D? Oh well, such and such the parameters of the thing. I said, but this is experimental video. It was an experimental video class. And I'm like, this is my, this is my experience. This is my, how are you, what are you grading it on? 
you know? And so I couldn't get the D changed. So at that point, I said to myself, all right, I'm going to finish this, but I don't even care what the grades are because I, I know what I'm trying to do. So it doesn't matter what what my, what my the grade is or how people, and I just got way more, way more militant in the stuff that I was doing at that time because we were really, really fighting against the, the school, um, you know, typical white school, but the, our, the black students there, we all were sort of like collectively pissed off. Right. And so whatever we could do, to to throw something at the administration we did it and so i did all of my stuff was was very radical very black very um anti-establishment sort of things like we i would help out other filmmakers in the in the class and they like we all were really trying to do it to the point where they they just didn't they just didn't like us um the other part of it though we had bobby seal was um what do you call his professors? Like he had, he could come in any, I can't remember what you call it. He can come in anytime he wants. Right. To the, to the school. So Bobby Seale was there for the Black Panther Bobby Seale? Yeah. Bobby Seale, the Black Panther, the start of the Black Panthers. Wow. So he would come in and teach these classes and talk to classes in our AFAM part of it all. So a few of the students from the African-American studies were in the film program as well. And so I just remember us talking to him one day just about how we just feel like we, you know, we, we're being like hushed as students. And of course, this is Bobby Seale. Right? <laughs> he he's, a right, like, he's a right guy. <laughs> yo, he was like, he was like, he said, you got to do what you feel. He said, look at me. I started the Black Panthers and Temple University is paying me and I ain't got to come talk to you guys, but twice a year. And I got an office that can't nobody go into. Like he started, you know, going into all of that and telling. So that just put the battery all the way in my back. Because I'm like, you know, the start, the the leader of the Black Panthers, you know, they tried to do everything they could to him. Temple gave him a, a seat at the table. And now he's just like, you know, telling the kids just go for broke. So that's kind of what that's kind of what I did in terms of, you know, as a student, as a student in school and where I, where my mind was at when it came to filmmaking. It was very much in line with uh with the African-American experience that was happening. Um, now, you mentioned the name was also nearly as affiliated with your, you know, your, your rapping. Yeah, man. And, and I know when I met you, you know, shout out to my man, Hawk. Um, yeah, Channel Live. Channel Live, you know, KRS-One's group, for those folks that don't know, Channel Live for me was um, a moment for me when I was in university. I remember like a lot of the, um, the frat houses and the steppers would come out and, and dance to Madism, which was just like oh, a spark Madism. Yeah. Madism was like a weed anthem, right? It was one mm -hmm. of those records that when it came on, people just lost their shit. It was just a vibe and you were rolling with these guys. So what, mm -hmm. how did you meet up? How did you meet up with Tuffy and Hawk? How did that whole relationship come about? So it came about because my, um, I'm an alpha. I pledged alpha at Temple. And so my frat brother, his girlfriend used to have these big parties, these massive parties at, she had a house in the Poconos and uh, her parents owned a house in the Poconos. And so she would have these parties and it would be like barbecue and the whole thing. And it's like a hundred people there. And everybody drove from New York and Jersey and Philly. So at one of these parties, Hawk was there and um, he did not have a deal yet, but he was working with KRS and he knew I was rapping and he was rapping. So we battled. You know, we battled at that party and, oh, wow. uh, 
yeah, it was funny. And then from there, we just, this was like 92 or something like that. And, and the next time I saw him, I saw the video and I was like, Oh snap, that's, that's <laughs> my man. Like, you know, and he, and he had the, the video on. And then I moved to New York, like right, right around the same time I moved to New York in 94. And, um, right after that, they had the video and, uh, it's like, whoa. And I happened to see him. It's funny. I was on a job. I was PA and on a movie and we were in Midtown and I saw him walking up the street. He was coming from somewhere. And I'm like, yo, Hawk. he was like, yo, what's up? Da, da, da. Exchange numbers. And um, we got we locked back in, man, from from that point, from that point. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and, and I was see when you, you and Hawk are still locked in as friends and shit. Yeah, right? you still, still to talk. this day. Yeah, that's like, my brother. Long term brotherhood yeah. there, both for a long yeah. time. Um, yeah. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to mm-hmm. 95, um, where you were working as a security guard. Um, <laughs> somebody on... said that. I never. That's so funny. Somebody else said that. I, somebody's writing stuff in the Wikipedia. I never did no security. Oh, really? That's all? That's <laughs> no. All... Okay. Take just that. making <laughs> some shit up? Yeah, making up stuff. I was like, shit, I didn't know. Well, I didn't know about the, you know, the stylistics. I was like, shit, might as well just nah, shut the fuck up no and go down this path. Thing. You know how that rumor started? That, that, that happened because somebody had asked me when the Pac movie came out about Jada's statement. Right. Jada Pinkett's statement. And so I told the story of how I was a PA on a, on a movie called Woo that was being shot in Brooklyn. And she was in the movie. And so that at that time, her and Will Smith weren't married yet, but they were together. Right. And she found out I went to school. I, I was from Philly and I went to Overbrook. She was like, I was assigned to her. You know how like UPA, like you walk in town at the set and all that stuff. And so I was assigned to her for the whole time that she was shooting the movie. So Walker to set. Walk her back to set, sit in front of the trailer, do all that stuff. Well, one of these days, this is right, Tupac had just died. And so uh, we were shooting and we were like on um, Lafayette somewhere in flat in Fort Greene. And this kid kind of jumped out of nowhere and was like, Jada, what, you know, said about Pac and da, 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 da. And she like went off on him, you know, like she was ready to, to rumble him. So I was like, no, 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 don't do that. So I put her in the um, trailer. I said, you go in the trailer. And so... You know, y'all know me from the old walkie walkie talkie days. So I had to walkie with me. Punk. <laughs> <laughs> so I took the walkie like, yo, what's the, you know, da, 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 and so confronted the guy, whatever. So I think in in one in an interview I did, I said, um, at that moment, it was like I was her security. You know, Got and it. It, that and then that changed into something with Spike Lee or something like that. Like I never did no. Crazy. <laughs> well, I'm, well, thank you for clearing that up because it's like yeah. it's it's, it's, yeah. it's 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 always it's always that lesson about don't always believe what you read on the internet. So here's no, a you can't. here's case you in can't. point. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't believe all that stuff. Um, but but one thing we can talk about is uh, how we met you, right? Yeah, um, yeah. We met you as an AD, and for those who don't know, uh, an AD is the assistant role to the director. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm before that. Before the AD, before mm-hmm. that, you you met Benny as an AD. Oh shit! <laughs> right, right. I met Benny when I was still an intern. I was interning, yeah. right? I was, yeah, interning. was interning. I was just and just beginning. We, we was really there at those early days, and Benny was still early PA. Days. 
All right, yep. so then, so then speak PA. to that ex. So, what is so? I'm assuming this is your internship at Big Dog Films big dog. High Williams. This is, big, this is that Big Dog era when it's like this was the only game in town. So, there's mm-hmm. a few people that always that you know that worked on all the jobs. This is of the door days, Antoinette, you know, King mm-hmm. Udi, Udi, Connie Orlando. Mm-hmm. This is when all that was happening, you know, what I mean? and before it all collapsed, Kiki Turner, mm-hmm. right? Like all that crazy shit. And this was around when Brett Ratner had his company. Rap he, got, and, he was kind of at the end of his thing because he had gotten in yeah, trouble ex- with the unions and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The music video shit back then, we they we burnt we people burnt right through. The, let's say they were passionate about the vision. You know what I'm saying? So the money could get funny by the end of the job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? But that was those days, and um, and I just started. I just started directing, mm-hmm. right? And. So I remember Buddy one day, he said, you need to stop fucking around. Hire me on this shit. Mm-hmm. And then the gig, the gig that changed everything is when we did, it was a changing point for my whole life. We did uh, DMX, What's My Name. Mm. And wow. there's, two, there's, there's two days. So they're like, okay. They put me with Claudio Miranda. Mm-hmm. And they wait, put wait, me hold on. Eight. Hold on, before, hold on. See, you're, so you're a man that just throws out shit and expecting people to know shit. Just for the record, <laughs> Oscar award winning D.O.P. Claudio Miranda. Yeah, this was before X. that, though. Yeah, but before yeah. that. But, but, but before that, this was Claudio was hip hop is always a jump off. Yeah, it is for all, everyone else. Right. Yeah. So Claudio was a, was a gaffer on the biggest movies with the biggest directors, and just to show you how much people, if you're not doing it, they can't wrap their head around it. Right. Right. So this man is gaffing for David Fincher. He's gaffing for the biggest D.P.s in the world. Darius Conji, was it Darius? He was oh, Darius Conji, the, yeah. the A plus plus level of directors and photographers, Claudio is the gap, right? But still, when he says, I want to start shooting, he's shooting fuckery fucking country videos. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So his girl is friends with someone at HSI, which was my production. Oh, that's right. Says, yeah, yo, yeah, yeah. Says, yeah. yo, X, link up with, yo, X, check this guy out. Yeah. Right? Cool, I'm going to shoot you too. Right, and then they put me with Paul Hunter's AD, his regular Stu, and yeah, yeah. I and then in my head I'm still like, this is what people want. I'm all the people want this and people want that. So I have all these girls and everyone's just crazy. We have a big giant set, but it's just chaos. The whole mm-hmm. video is just chaos. And then DMX, uh, Benny thinks he's fa- he was faking it, but then DMX gets sick. I mean, I couldn't keep DMX on his own set for a minute, but he would <laughs> stop by other sets I was shooting and not leave. But anyways, on this set. <laughs> He gets sick and he says, I'm out, right? The day's been a bag of chaos. Everything's fucked up. He, he had an asthma up. attack. He had, I was on set. He had he an had asthma, asthma attack, attack. Of, yeah. from, the, right. from the fog machine. Remember, he couldn't breathe. And then, so we need a pickup day and Stu dips. I'm out. And I said, yeah. all right, Benny, Benny, you I couldn't believe it. I could, like in my brain, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that he, like, Go ahead, I'm gonna let you tell it, X, and I'm gonna tell you my right. point of view from it. And, right, yeah. So, so yeah, but it was a, it was a bit of a fuckery. We can feel mm-hmm. the energy. There's, he, he was like, oh, fuck this, fuck it, fuck this shit. Right, Hip-hop, this right. Shit. I'm out. I'm, I work with Paul Hunter. I'm, I did my favor, right? Right. So that was, so he dips. All right, Benny, you do it. Claudio, we're going to do it. And then my mind clicks like, fuck everybody. Gel the lights green, because I'm doing bright lights and girls. I said, nah, make the lights green, make the lights red, make the light every scene. So there's essentially two videos in that video. There's the video mm-hmm. when I'm like, 
um, bright lights and girls. And then there's a video, I'm like, fuck y'all. Benny's the AD, Claudio do this, everyone wear mm -hmm. black, and here we go. And that other video where all the lights are, if you can imagine if the whole video was that video, it would have been a smash down fucking crazy mm. joint. But yeah, it was when was. I really, it still was, but it was not what, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, the, the lesson for me was that, fuck these guys. So that's when mm -hmm. I went on the, <laughs> the Benny and I were on the fuck these guys journey. <laughs> oh, I remember. That was a, it was a great tour. <laughs> that was a great tour. Here's yeah, but the thing. from that point on, it was you, me, Claudio, mm -hmm. and fuck these guys. And no and one could tell us fucking nothing. You couldn't even nothing. tell us to stop. We, we was just going. Burning through <laughs> film. But here's my thing. So, like, so rewind a little bit. So at Big Dog, everybody was sort of waiting for their opportunity to direct and thinking, okay, when is hype going to get this? Or when, when can I get a shot? X was going away to to Toronto to and coming back after like a week because you would go away for like a week or two and then come mm. back. Wait, you, you had like visa issues or whatever, or you just was going home. I just go home, fuck around for yeah. a minute, come back. And come back. You was coming back with cardinal videos and all this stuff. And Chocolate, we were in, yeah. Chocolate. And these were these were the images. We had never seen these images before. The way that that they were, the colors, just the way they were shot. And so at that point, I was like, all right, if I'm not going, if if I'm not about to jump in it right this second, I'm going to make sure my man is cool. So at any way, anyhow I could do it, even we did like, um, I can't remember who the A, who was the first AD on DMX Aaliyah? Uh, I wasn't. It was somebody, I can't remember, but... Maybe I, I can't remember. I think but it was you, because at that point, that was, was us. I? Yeah, I that was, was us you. at that point. But I just remember us being like, you know, because AD was a diversion from what I wanted to do, but for him, I was going to do it. And also, I felt like nobody wanted to see X win for whatever reason. You know what I'm saying? So, like, and he was always looked at as hype's underling. And we would have those concerts. So I was like, all right, we got to build our own thing aside from that. Hype was hype. So actually, and I'm going to be a part of that, the building of that. And that's why it was for me, it wasn't even, it wasn't about the job. It wasn't about none of that. It was about me connecting with him, realizing the, the kindred spirit that the kindred this, that we had together. And it was his moment in time and me saying, damn it, we're going to make this happen. So 98, 99, early 2000, you couldn't tell us nothing. <laughs> like we would say, <laughs> you couldn't tell us nothing. We were shooting stuff. And, and you know, and X was the hottest thing in town because it was points where everybody was like, well, we can't get hype, let's get X. And then that changed to people not even thinking about hype. They just wanted X. You know what I mean? So that was all the work that was put in and the great thing about that is, see, like, it's interesting because God puts you in places at times when you're supposed, you want to lead, but it's, it's, you're supposed to follow in that moment. You right. know what I'm saying? And, and that was, those years were, were so important because I wasn't ready at that time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I thought I was ready, but I wasn't ready. What got me ready was being there, AD and watching how all this, okay, boom, let me see how all this is going. 
while we're building that brand. You understand what I'm saying? So that when it came time for me, it, it, I was 100% ready. You know, so all that stuff was important and it was so valuable. And we was just having fun and we were creating history. Like we didn't realize it, you know, just out there doing it. We didn't realize what we were doing. Oh yeah. At and, all. And and to me it's like that was that was our that was our uh, master class. That was the master class. That was our master class. That was the master class. We were all of us were young black men, mm -hmm. you know, breaking barriers down. Because remember, X was coming in there hot. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Not talking about not I'm talking I'm not just talking about status hot, just like shit, I'm a young twenty-five year old guy. Yeah. Motherfuckers need to respect me because young right. black it, it, you know, we started at twenty three, but my really started rocking at twenty three. So you 20, we were young, there yeah. for the yeah. young dog. Young. Yeah, super young. Mm -hmm. Um which is funny because like that was you actually kind of led into my next question, Benny, when I was asking um for the fact that you were an AD uh to X and being in the company of the Paul Hunters and the hypes, you know, like you pretty much learned the process. You learned seeing how these guys did their thing. And, mm -hmm. and from you now transitioning from AD to director, do you feel that also helped equip you to do what you got to do today? Yeah, I think, oh, 100%. I mean, because, um, well, the funny thing is, so the initial transition, because of how we feel like, you know, what X was saying, like, we just going to do what we want to do. Right. And I think, and I think, and also being around and seeing Hype, like, Hype was literally a person that you couldn't tell him nothing. Like, when I say that, and I'm not saying it in a bad way, I'm saying he got in his mind with his, what he wants to do, but he's not explaining it to everybody. So when people are like, well, you just shot this already. And he'll just look at you like, how dare you? Like, don't question me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's like a real artist type of thing because I AD for him as well. Right. After he saw me AD for <laughs> <laughs> but, but, But it was interesting because, um, well, the first, or take it back, actually the first moment I AD'd was for Hype. It was for um, uh, Nas, um, Hate Me Now. Because Big Mike was his AD and Mike had broke his foot on the New York portion. And yeah. so I got the call from from Big Mike to um, that he wasn't going to be there, that I was going to be first in. And I was like, did you tell Hype already? <laughs> he was like, he literally said, <laughs> 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 oh my God. He said, fuck Hype. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's got to <laughs> <laughs> if anybody knows Mike Ellis, they know what I'm saying is a hundred percent true. I'm like, did you tell you tell hype? And everybody like, man, fuck hype. You show up and do what I tell you. So when I got there, um, <laughs> I was like, where's Mike? I said he broke his foot. He's not gonna be here. He told me to take over, and that, and hype was like, all right. So basically, what Mike said is what you know. Um, and that was the first night. And it was interesting because Freaky Todd's funeral was that night in Queens. Oh, and we mm. were shooting in Queens and Diddy and Nas were on top of um on top of the store in the that in the video. Yeah. yeah, right on top of the bodega. And uh it was tense because for whatever reason cats felt like Nas was being disrespectful by not coming to the funeral or to the thing. And so it got really tense and 
we had to bring him down because people were talking crazy and, you know, it, like, oh, he's up there and, you know, he should be at the funeral. And the funeral was like four blocks away or something like that. And so he finally came down and he had this conversation with with whoever he needed to. And then we continued to shoot. But um, it was just crazy. So, yeah, that was funny. We had <laughs> it was that was nuts. But uh, that was like the first time that I ate deep for him. But then right after that, you know, me and X was rocking. You know the what duo. I mean? Like you guys, rocking, you guys rocking. were the duo, man. And, and it was Batman and Robin. I keep t- I tell people that all the time. He was Batman and I was Robin, even yeah. though I'm much older than him. He was. The <laughs> <laughs> you know, but and, but and, I think Claudio. I, it was the, it was the three of us. So who's what's Claudio? Motherfucking Wonder Woman. Claudio Robin, was no, he's Alfred. He's uh, Alfred. Uh, <laughs> Alfred. He's Alfred. He's Alfred. Yeah. Or that guy Fox. What's the, the the character that Morgan Freeman plays in the? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, but here yeah. but here's a ready joke. Because I, I got to, you know, I got to talk about it because back then I was X's executive assistant. And there was this joke that there was always a running joke on set between you, uh, X and Claudio, when you guys would start talking like lenses and just uh-huh. talking, start talking like camera talk. Like, hey, hey, Claudio, remember when we changed that lens to the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? You guys would have this kind of hold on, and, and you guys would literally start laughing, looking over to me, because you know I did not understand what the <laughs> fuck you guys were talking about. Actually, you know what I'm talking about? You guys just sit there like, hey, yeah, I, mean, we- <laughs> I mean, it wasn't to make fun of you. We was literally just having them kind of, you know, we'd run, when you do 120 frames, that yeah. was a lot of money. When you oh ran it, like, you, you had 400 feet of film. And you yeah. decided to run that motherfucker at 120 frames per second. So for yeah. people to understand, you would take four at uh, 24 frames per second. You your 400 feet of film would be about four minutes. Four minutes. Four, no, minutes. four minutes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Four minutes. But at, at 120, that went to, at 24. You got four minutes. Yeah. But at 120, you had a minute. So you you and, and, and each roll of film was like 400 bucks. So you right. would. <laughs> you, <laughs> so you would about, just <laughs> think about Donnell Jones' video. The whole. Video is slow motion. Man. Everything's one twenty. Yes, everything's one twenty. So it would be so that would be like yo one twenty all day. Ah, we would all have a because <laughs> of what it means. To, and this, I mean, if you ran out of film, you had to get more film. This is yeah. not the digital days. And like, it's I don't know how much you would have to run everything at fucking five thousand frames a second to fucking right. fill up these new fucking drives. And that's why actually I actually shoot when I do music videos. I'll shoot the whole fucking thing at 120. Yeah, we shoot everything. the whole thing now. 60, 120, the whole thing. The whole everything slow motion because just so you have it. So, mm-hmm. but though, but in that in that moment in that time, these were not little things. And so we were, t- you know, you, we're speaking. We tell jokes in our language, and our language was film lenses, fucking frame rates, and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Taj, Taj would be there for the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and these were funny jokes to us. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was sitting there like, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so since we're you know since we're talking about back in the day and nostalgia, uh, we were most definitely. It's funny enough. We this is something that we were talking to Dave Myers about um, on our prior conversation about you know the golden age of music videos. You know mm-hmm. the late '90s, early 2000s, and Benny, man, you worked with you know some of the biggest and brightest in the business. Everybody from Cash Money Records, Lil Wayne, Birdman. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 Cent, Nas, Snoop Dogg, Nelly, Keisha Cole, Diddy, G-Dep, and the list goes on. Like, what was it like working in that era? Now, we just we were just talking about the film side, you know, cellular mm-hmm. versus digital. But 
it was a different era when you're dealing with these crews. Different whole era, different attitude, and it was just it was a it was just new. All of it was new, right? Yeah. This, this was the explosion. Artists were making a lot of money. Budgets were big. They're fruitful. You know, like shit. I remember the days when we shoot a million dollar video, we we trash it, shoot another one. You know, it's shoot just another like, one. Yeah. It was it was a, it was like it was a golden era. It was like this. It was like yeah. the stock market was everybody was winning. So can you speak to that era and just that yeah. energy and how it was working with those artists and the, the, uh, just the, the vibe on set and just even the attitudes that you're dealing with and just just everything, just that whole era. Yeah, I mean, I think I came in, I would say that I came in at the very tail end of the big money spending because, you know, when I talk to people about that era, I say big pimping, big pimping was the beginning of the end of all of that for right. hip-hop. We literally went there. I remember picking up Kevin Lyles and Lior Cohen from the airport, they had a suitcase, clear suitcase full of singles. And we were eating at the hotel. We had gotten some lunch or something and the taste was there. They had a guard with us. And my brain was like, why are they bringing single dollar bills in suitcases and clear boxes? And it was for that scene where Jay-Z's literally throwing money in the air. We shot four days on that video or something like that the hype shot, something like that. I mean, it was, I just, we just watched, and mind you, it's one of the best videos ever, ever, period. But we were there and watched it being made. And imagine the money that was spent on that video, what we would have done today, <sighs> given that, that budget. Like money was just thrown away. We, the second part was in Miami. You know, X shot most of the second part. You know what I'm saying? I AD, but like there's so much to that video, but that video was a turning point, I think, for all of for all of us and for the industry. Because prior to that, there was no combination, and I'm trying to figure out how to say this, like that moment for Jay-Z, it, it was it, there was no coming back from that. Like yeah. he was out of there from it was over. Yeah. From that moment, there was no turning back. There was no second thought about who was the king. There was no nothing after that moment. Yeah. Um, and so I come in that summer with um, Wild Out 2K, which was uh, the Channel Live video. And then which was one hundred thousand dollars, which at that time was a big deal for a right. first time, first time directing something. Latifah, they were signed to Queen Latifah's label and they gave me a hundred thousand. Uh, then I did another video for this French artist um, named Kamel from this group called Alliance Ethnique, was from Paris. And then I did Uchiwali. And so for me, Uchiwali was my scale down version of Big Pimpin'. You know what I mean? Like a tenth of the budget. But in my brain, I knew what the visuals should be. So that was that a, that was that approach. Even when we talked about the concept with Nas, I said, yo, you know, and he had been going through his thing with Jay-Z. I still was like Big Pippin, regardless of what their issue was, niggas knew Big Pimpin was was it. Like right. you needed something to put you on that on that platform. So it was glossy, it was big, it was rich, it was all those things. So everybody chased that. You know, when you could, in terms of conceptually, if the record made sense and if the artist made sense and, and stuff like but, that. But you but you're right though, that the change the turning point for hip hop after after Big Pimpin', 
that's when every single music video was as many girls as you can get. Yeah, as many, yeah, <laughs> you're was, right about that. that no, it was, that's it when was, that happened. It was quite. It was quality over quantity at that point. You're right about that. I, yeah, like you mean the flip, the qu- qu- quantity over the quality. Yeah, I'm like, sorry. Yes, became, quantity over yeah, quality. Yeah, but yes, it yes, was. Yeah. But before that, you would still have like, okay, what's the concept? Does it call for women? Does it not? Does right, it, right, right. So, but after Big Pimpin', everyone it was all just changed. Like, just girls. It doesn't matter what you're rapping about. It doesn't matter what we're doing. As yeah. many girls as you can fit into the video as possible. That's what needs to be done. And, and that was, changed I mean, it all. I mean, the, that I mean, you remember it all. We, We'd be doing panels. We was at you fucking Harvard University debating why there's so many girls. Like it was yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Literally, times remembers we went to Harvard University to debate why there's so many fucking girls in the video. Oh yeah, they they came they came at you, bro. They came at you with the guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, and, and and I get it because you know it's a whole thing about you know uh, females being exploited and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But then you also turned it on their head and told them like, look, I'm also celebrating these women. Right. I shoot mm-hmm. them in an artful way because like, you know, X would bring up, yeah, when I did, you know, shake your ass with with Mr. Cal, we could have mm-hmm. we, we could have gone. We could have gone there. We could have done it all only strip clubs. We could have done right. it like BT after dark. But no, we 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 made a narrative. There was purpose. Um, yeah, there, there, mm-hmm. was, there was there had there's character within the character. Like so, you know, it's it was that fine balance. Right. It was trying to figure it out. But like but to your point, like that whole. That whole era was the video vic. That was the birthing of the video vixen era. It really was. It right? was. And then and, they, and the and thing the is that everybody kings. Yeah. And then the thing is everybody didn't have the budgets for to do it or the creativity. And sometimes the records didn't even really call for it. You know, so it just it just kind of went. It just spiraled. It just really spiraled out of control, to where. It became one. It be just. It just became gratuitous, where, you know, it, it just would. It just caught. You knew and expected that to happen, regardless of whether. I remember. I can't remember what video I, I was writing something, or something, and they were like, "Well, how many girls?" I'm like, "There's none." And they caught like, <laughs> you know, I was like, "Well, wait a minute, I don't have any." <laughs> and they're like, "What?" It was an artist. I'm like, "Well, no, this is." So it just changed. It changed it all. It changed it all. But 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 the thing though is, um, I would say everybody had to find their their lane at that point because this you don't want to try. You know, it's okay to try to imitate and emulate when you come in because you're trying to find it. But for me, it was like, okay, let me find my lane. Like I I sat hours with X and watched him just draw things take the page and start drawing again. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's how his mind worked. My mind didn't work like that. Like I wasn't an artist. I couldn't draw things. My mind was, I came from a street element mentality. So the things that connected to me the most were visuals that, that, um, that I felt like I could, like I could grab, you you know what I'm saying? Like, so in writing concepts, um, and liking songs that I would write things for, I always felt like it had to be some street. Like the perfect example is is A Marie. Um, Why don't we fall in love? Right. Right. So that record, nobody had ever seen A Marie before. Nobody knew anything, but everybody heard that record. And in first hearing that record, that song, it was like studio or thing, and oh, she's pretty. You should like this way. 
I didn't think like that. Like, I was like, yo, this is a girl that you want to see walking down the street. Like, how does she connect to everybody? So we did that that video with her in the, the first day of summer in Brooklyn. And she starts in her apartment and it's hot. And then she wants to go outside and just be in love with life. And put her in the environment of the gritty urban environment. That's how that's how I thought about things. I, I, I always felt like you you knew... Like you, said, like you said, you had a you had a street sense to it. You I remember you saying you knew what was corny and what was not, and the risk of being mm. corny. Mm. Right? And, mm. and uh, directors from outside the culture could you if you just did whatever they said, you could find yourself in a corny situation, which is the yeah. worst. You, I remember you saying this somewhere. We're talking about like the worst yeah. thing for a hip hop artist to be is corny. You yeah, that's the worst thing, man. And have cats look at you like, what are you doing? Right. Right. And for me, for me, I was always I'm a visual artist, so my my yeah. real thing was creating visuals. And I mean, I, I tried to make cats go do different shit early in my career. And they, not only did I get, it almost beat it out of me completely. Like the crazy concepts I used to write. Cause they're like, man, I'm not floating. What are you talking about? <laughs> shit, <laughs> shit that these kids be doing all the time now. Like you could, yeah, you could yeah. say to Puff, yeah. And then you're going to float. And like, fuck yeah. yeah, I'm right. not doing that. Right. 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 So I, I found my space in the creation of visuals and graphics and trying to bring art and, and I think that was where things made, for me, things made sense. I, I was bringing art closer and hip hop closer to a mm -hmm. place where they felt like they worked together. Right. right? And, it, right. and everyone involved felt like, oh, I'm doing some art. All right. But you did feel whack. And everyone felt like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. I mean. But, yeah, but, you, <laughs> look, man, but you knew, you knew the street shit. You knew on a, on a, like hate me now, I think is not hate me now. Sorry, um, I, Nas, the Nas joint. Oh, made you look. Um, made you look. Mm. I think made you look is a great example of understanding the culture, right? Of like in your DNA, mm. and then the streets and all the things that made that video what it was and how to yeah. how to speak through it. You know what I'm saying? Like there yeah. was, you're channeling at that point. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, was, and honestly, it's and to that to add to what X just said. Benny, like a lot of your work, um, which we're gonna lead into your your some of your top collaborators, um, it was grounded in reality. It was grounded mm -hmm. in realism, right? If you look at what what how Scorsese built his life yeah. around like he, New York was his backdrop, right? You yeah. watch films like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, you can smell it, you can feel it, you can see it. It's the same aesthetic that you brought with the artist. Like you made sure, like their environment was a part of their DNA in terms of, yeah. of, of their visual landscape. Um, and which leads me to one of your top collaborators with Nicki Minaj and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, early in her career, how did that come about? Especially coming from your world, you know, yeah. working with like, you know, you worked with a lot of gladiator artists and now you're working with the queen, the queen of this generation um, for, for female MCs. How did that collaboration come about, and 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 how was how was that synergy? Yeah, you know what's interesting. Um, I think what happens is, and this is with female artists, whether they're rappers or singers, because of the because of what the business is, it's a very male centered industry. So um, the the trust factor is very important in that situation. Um, right. I had it with Keisha Cole. There was a trust factor there where we would just come up with ideas. 
she thought a lot like me because she's from East Oakland. So our idea of like sort of like grungy glamour or whatever, like, you know, it wasn't trying to be too polished because she wasn't too polished. You know what I'm saying? And not trying to sing. So I think what had happened was um, by the time, by the time I started shooting Nikki, she had gone through that transition of the wigs and all the, all of the um, characterization of who she was. And by the time we did bees in the trap, there was this yearning to get back to some sort of, of re of realism. Now I won't say reality. I'll say some sort of realism yeah. about who she was as an artist that had done the weird, weird, because people would say, what happened to the mixtape Nikki or that? So we sort of aligned right at the same time where she was thinking that, which was why bees in the trap, I think was the first single off that album. Um, and it was a hard record and, you know, um, she wanted to be in a strip club. We had seen her in videos by that point. Everybody had had um, had shot her before. And so my thing was, okay, she's going to come the way she's going to come, whether it's with a colored wig or wardrobe. Can't really get involved in that part of it because she's going to tell you what she's going to wear. Right. But what I want to do is sort of gritty it up a little bit. And I think that that first video, the bees in the trap one, because I had shot her before with Keisha Cole in a video and she was there. She might've been there for like two hours. Um, I ain't, I think the same, the name of the song is I ain't, I ain't through. Um, and she was uh, on the song, but um, from there, I think she wasn't exactly sure. Like she was questioning every shot when we did it. it and, and when she saw the end result though, and she saw the video immediately it clicked and the trust factor happened because when we, when she saw the first edit, we were on the phone already talking about the Chris Brown record. So she was like, I want to do this. Da, 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 and we went and did that. So that by the time pound the alarm came, pound the alarm was, was the perfect storm because for me, pound the alarm was my opportunity to do big pimping. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, really, but the girl version but to be back in Trinidad, it wasn't carnival, but we, it wasn't even near the time of carnival. We recreated that moment and everything about it was for me, my, my chance, but it was that gritty glamor. You know what I'm saying? She's out in the street. She's who she is. She's back home. She was surrounded by family members. She was, you know, it was that kind of thing. And so that, from that moment, we just, it was just, you know, video after video and it just locked in. And then, you know, and I think just, just how all um, these sort of relationships with artists change, the artist changes, then they want something different. That's fine. You know, it happens, it happens all the time. You know, um, I've seen, you know, and just being part of X's career, you know, I've seen like Usher, for example, like if you ask me, about Usher's videos, it's either, it's extra Chris. Like, I can't even think about, and I know Hype did the original ones, when he, but I'm talking about when you see the, the videos, extra Chris, I can't even think of anybody else that has ever done an Usher video that that I can remember right. that was like, oh, shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to call was like, 
what? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just so, it's just so crazy. But depending on where that artist is in his mind at the time, he was either going to go to X or he was going to go to Chris. And it's okay. Because we know, we know as directors what we gave to that artist for that song. Right. And what that meant, what they got out of us, what they gave to us and what we all collaborated on and what the outcome was. And then when you get, if you're blessed with the opportunity to work with that person several times, you know, you feel like, you know what, it's okay if you go and do a video with someone else, maybe we're out of ideas together. And then you get back in line with them and then all of a sudden it's, you know, you back into it, you know? I think it speaks to um, the directors, especially when it comes to hip hop, but maybe for the rock and roll shit, who knows? Cause we're not part of it. But mm -hmm. the that, when the directors, when the directors come from the culture, you know, yeah, and, definitely. And, and there is there is a difference. Even even the ones that came in kind of passed through hip hop. They kind of they that was their little springboard. Yeah. yeah. And, but you know, look, they had they did really great work, and there's a lot of um, you know, like the Francis Lawrences and and mm. you know what I'm saying that he passed through and everything. Yeah, he did Rascas. He did Rascas. Yeah. Video for, like, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. This like, thing, but he was like them floating in the floating in the air, and then the stuff he did <laughs> genuine and. But yeah. they always look good. They always, always look like money, but didn't always have the soul that you got from, you know what I'm saying? That mm -hmm. you got from the solo nights. That was that was the Rascaz record. That, right. That that um that Francis did. He did mm -hmm. a bunch of old, but that but he he came in, but and that was and he passed through. And I like Francis. Great. I mean, he's yeah, a great director. Come on. But one of the best. You can't say you can't say nothing. But that, then but that that. What do you remember? What what really strikes you as an artist? Because the mm -hmm. kids at home, they know something looks good, kind of, mm -hmm. but they don't care. Is the record hot? And do they resonate with what the content, the that yeah. outfit that you're wearing? I, I try when I when I try to explain to people, you know, uh, product shots that we created product shots. We created yeah. not not yeah. or uh, but product product integration integration. And yeah. When when we grew up. There was no close up. There was barely a close up of the artist, let alone of right, the right, shoot. right. You know what right. I'm saying? <laughs> but we, the close up was in our head. We were like, "Yo, yeah. those yeah. shoes, that yeah. outfit." We saw it. We loved it. Like that meant something to us. Yeah. And that's the same shit with 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 the we. Yo, you got to do this. Yo, the, the fact that Usher and I were relatively in the same space as far as age wise and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So me writing. Uh, you got it bad, or you don't have to call. Is me putting my world out there? Like you, yeah. again, you and Keisha had that same mindset. There is something about the culture. What I tell to to kids who come to me and say, "I want to direct. Where should I go? Where can I find my opportunity?" I tell them, "Go to your subculture. Mm -hmm. You like skateboarding? Go to your. You like basketball? Go go wherever you where that thing you love. Especially now, where there's so many cameras around, go yeah. there. Because if anyone's going to, who gave us our shots? The Death right. Jams, the Bad right. Boys, the subculture." Yeah said, all right, you can have a shot. Because you remember, yeah. then you go to the major labels and they still look at us like. Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> right, yeah, like, exactly. you think, do you think hype could be on set with X if he did, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Right, or, or like for less money or like, it's just these crazy conversations. Mm -hmm. you, the subculture means something. Because not only, not only are they going to give you a shot on a level of, here's your shot, but they're also going to fucking, what you bring to them is going yeah. to be just as important as the as the opportunity they're giving to you. Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to talk about your movies and TV stuff before we get you know too far down the 
we're lo- yeah. run out of time. No, no, but, no. Actually, yeah. funny enough, I was actually segueing into um, into the movies, um, which mm-hmm. is funny. Um, so let's let's get into it. So, um, for those who don't know, uh, Benny's director, you know, directed some films, uh, everything from Next Day Air, SWAT, Firefight, and of course uh, the Tupac film, All Eyes on Me. So I guess my question for you is, coming from the music uh, video world of directing, there's always that there's always that thing and stigma coming from our world. Oh, you're a music video director. You can only make shit look pretty. You do you know how to tell stories? I'm, and then mm-hmm. X and I always scratch our head like, uh, yeah. Have you watched my music videos? <laughs> right. Actually, right. Have you have you watched my music videos that actually have narratives in them? Yes, I understand right. the story. The only difference is during these three minutes, it's a short film and it's going over you know lyric song and melody versus um uh a script and and mm-hmm. and, and and pages so mm-hmm. i guess my question for you is what were some of the challenges that you had transitioning uh to being a, a filmmaker uh, working with actors uh the collaboration process and then most importantly the creative freedoms now of course as you know with music videos you come in the come with the idea you from beginning to end it's all you but when you're coming into a movie, you know, it's, there's a script, there's a writer, mm-hmm. there's a showrunner, shit, there's a studio. Sometimes you feel like a hired gun. Like, just, I'd love to hear you speak to what your experiences were in the films that you worked on. And did you feel supported? And did you feel like you had um, full reign to do what you got to do, how you do it? Well, the, the, the bigger answer to all of that is um, you never feel fully supported in the feature film world. You have... It's too many people to answer to. And and unless you are a Martin Scorsese or a Spielberg or one of these guys who um, who says it's my way or or it's just not happening, you got to answer to it. So, you know, there's these rules that the DGA has, like the director has 10 weeks to do his edit and then the producers have two weeks to do theirs and this and that. If someone has come behind you to change the your creativity is not yours anymore it's just not and so part of the challenge is finding a film either writing it finding producers that you can collaborate with that will let you do your vision um you know that's the only way that that happens where where you get uh, autonomy because at the end of the day you live and die by the film you make. Same thing in the, in the music video world. Like if we do a whack video, you trash. Right. No ma- you know what I'm saying? Like what have you done for me lately is, is the thing. So with the film business, is very, it's very much the same. The expectations, I would say when I did Next Day Air, th- there were lower expectations. Well, let me take that back. There were expectations because um, a few of us had already made that leap into the movies, Jesse, and I think Chris did ATL the year before. Um, Paul had did Bulletproof Monk. Of course, Hype did Belly. Um, so there were these expectations of these young black video directors coming to the feature world. Um, and, and what were we gonna bring different or what were we gonna bring to the table to, to be successful? So creatively, I would say I was, able to do what I want, but then when people come back, say like in a music video, if the label has changes 
and you're like, oh, that's terrible. And you got a connection with the artist, you say, yo, why do they want to do this? And you let the artist fight that fight for you. A lot of times you could win. You're not winning anything in Hollywood when they when people have never made a movie before ever in their life say this scene should be cut or we need to change this or this is not the right thing. And you don't the, have control. Or the person or the person saying it is made of bag of movies, but they're <laughs> but right. they're not connected, you know what I'm saying? But like, they're not connecting. What the shit is, you know. And, and then and let's look I, at the go ahead, what you say? No, I'm just saying, like, they'll they'll tell you as a director, this is your movie. They'll right. hit you with that. It's your movie, though. And I, I remember sitting, sitting there, as a, they're saying this to me, and I go, man, I could get fired off this motherfucker. Of course you can. So it ain't my movie. It ain't your movie. <laughs> Some of it, exactly. And then the other thing is, and this is very recently, prior to, prior to, I would say the last couple of years, you still have to answer to somebody about the film that's about your culture, but they're not from the culture. So here you are trying to explain yourself why you're making certain creative choices, casting choices, uh, writing choices to someone who doesn't have a clue. That's changing now, which is a good thing uh, in a lot of these films that are coming out. I see directors and producers, uh, you see more producers of color, writers of color, directors. So the material is a lot more reflective of, of what our experiences are. But let me give you an example. So I had gotten a call to have a meeting about a feature um and it was a, a, a john lewis film this was a few years ago before he died and i walk into the meeting i'm not going to say who it was the, the person is from a very very well-known family the producer of this film and so i find myself sitting there and i'm looking at the faces and i'm sitting here trying to have a conversation about the freedom riders of the 1960s with people who are absolutely disconnected from that experience 100%. So A, I'm trying to explain why I would be the right candidate for the film. Do I know anything about the Freedom Writers? And what would I do in this film? The whole spiel that you do. It was a, probably the most insulting meeting I've ever had in my career. Because I, I, I'm like thinking to myself, I was an African studies major at college. Um, I, um, I'm an alpha. Like all these things, like I don't need to, to give a history lesson on what do I know about the Freedom Riders. The interview so, should be the other way around. Why are it should be the other way. Why do you think y'all have the right make, to produce it? Right. <laughs> so I hit my agent afterwards. As soon as I came out to meet and I said, you know what? I don't care what they say. I don't want to movie with these guys this is gonna be this is gonna be it's gonna be awful right it's gonna be awful because here i am trying to convince these people like i'm insulted and i always use the i always use the analogy that if let's say the three of us me taj and x we're sitting around and we're producers on this movie and the film is about the holocaust and this kid comes in and his grandfather is a holocaust survivor and we're sitting here asking him to explain what he knows about the Holocaust and why he would make this film. That's how I felt. Mm. That's exactly how I felt. Like as a filmmaker, I am a product of that experience. My family is a product of that experience. Um, how dare you ask me about 
that in this meet. So in any event, I, I, I didn't I didn't pursue the movie at all. But I will say that things have changed a lot. Um, I think that uh, because of um, there are a lot of avenues into being a film director now because uh, because cameras are readily available and people can just pick up a camera and start shooting things their own selves and stuff like that. And the trial and error of a director is very different and there's no gatekeepers anymore of who gets an opportunity and who doesn't get an opportunity. Um, so I don't know if that, I don't know if that's good or bad really, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure right. what that is. You know, it's just different. It's different than when we came in, not to say it's worse or not to say it's better. It's just different. It, but it at is. The same... Yeah. So, sorry for cutting you off, Benny. It, yeah. it, it is. There has been progress in a, in a sense where there are more players now, more black production companies out there mm-hmm. now. Like, you know, shout out to Ava DuVernay and Jordan Peele mm-hmm. and Will Packard and Tyler Perry. Mm-hmm. But now you got the Janelle Monet's. Now you got, um, you know, other folks now getting these first look deals um, at major studio companies. And, and I feel like it is beginning to open up more. There's still going to be the challenge because until we're fully in those positions of green light power, to be like, you know what, mm-hmm. Benny? Here's twenty million. Go make a movie. You know what, X? Hey, here's twenty million. Go make a movie. We're not in those roles yet, even though they are having partnerships with black production companies like Michael B. Jordan and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But the the struggle continues. But the, but what's happening is the um, the evolution of the story is is happening in terms of the 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 black POV, um, in terms right. of the perspective outside of just being slaves or you know the, street, yeah, the, experience, the, the drug dealers. totality yeah. there's a totality of the experience is what's happening yeah and and there's an interest i mean the reality is they would tell us well you can't make a movie about slavery because nobody's interested in seeing that but then the movie wins academy awards for writing and all these things and it's like nobody wants to see a movie about slavery but here it is they're winning awards at at the at the oscars at the academy awards and go like don't tell us what we know what we want to see. They, 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 they tell us that. Now they can't, they, it can't be said anymore because there is a slew of films about the African-American, or I would say the, the, this, the experience of the African diaspora, whether it's America or, you know, London, like we're watching, I'm watching all the, the, the British stuff that we're watching, which is, and so there is an interest in that. And it always has been, but, They've always said in, this, in the studio system, there's, there's nobody wants to see that. So I'm not going to spend money on it. Now they, they've fallen over each other to, to make these movies. They're falling over each other to get it done. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you know it is because now they're realizing, because remember, the old excuse was black movies don't do well across the border. Right. Right. They don't make money internationally. Right. They're great. They're great domestically. But unless you have a Will Smith or a Denzel Washington your movie's not going to make no money. But then look what happened with Black Panther. Look what happened with yes. Get Out with Jordan Peele, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, like, that whole, that whole myth and that, that, that glass ceiling they like to put over our heads, like, we're, we keep shattering it. But even with all the success, even with the track record, even with um, Straight Outta Compton, right? Right, yes, yes. Big, another another international success, right? So, like, The thing is, those two, it was three, three things happened at the same time. Straight Outta Compton, Empire and Power. Those three things happened at the same around the same time. So one, like where you had one that 
did a lot better than they thought with, with straight out of Compton. Like people, you know, the expectations of it, oh, it's going to make a lot of money. They, they didn't think it was going to make $100 million, right? They didn't understand the power of hip-hop and Dre and that whole situation. Then you have Empire, which is a show that sort of, it, it's a music show and it's music in it and it's performances, it's music videos, every single thing. Nobody wants to see that. And then it's the biggest show on television. Yeah. Then you get power to come out, like I think the next year or the year after or something like that or around the same time. And here it is. It's a gritty version. It's a combination of both of those things on cable. So you had a cable show that was geared towards our audiences. You had a, a film that just does phen- you know, phenomenally. And then you have a network show that is geared towards our audiences and everybody's watching, not just us, everybody's watching. So then all of a sudden now you got every network has this, as that, as this, as this, as this and everybody's, everybody's chasing it. Question is how long is this going to last? You know, right. that's the question. How long is it going to last? Is it the new black exploitation era? Um, what's going to come out of it? Uh, and, and what can we, and how can we implement ourselves in it? Like what, what didn't happen in black exploitation? We didn't own the studio, didn't own the material, didn't own any of those things. This time we're starting to, the ownership of it. We're smarter now, better for it. And can we own the rights to our stuff and all this? That's what, that's what has to be, that's what has to be different. So it's not just about, for me, it's, it's, it's about making that next leap into the film and television and, and being in there, but also looking over material, talk, calling writers and all this is like, yo, how can we collaborate on something that's an idea that we own and we package and take to HBO or Showtime or this or that. And then so that we are like, it's our show, you know? So that's, those are the conversations for me that I've been having and stuff like that, bigger than the directing of it all. I want to can you and how how does this how does this all work in the television world? You do a lot of episodic, mm-hmm. so how do, how does this? What's you know what I mean? There's the us in the driver's seat or us getting listened to. How does TV work? A lot because a lot of people don't really understand how this TV thing. Yeah, works. TV is a writer's is a the writers rule television. So when you hear the term showrunner, a showrunner is a person who is the writer or the head writer of the show, and they're usually the producer. So uh, let's say for example. Someone has an idea for a TV show. They put together, they come with the concept, if, whether it's a book or something like that. The producer will find a, a showrunner, write the, write the pilot, get with a network and do the show. They'll hire a writer's room. It'll be 10 episodes or 13 episodes or 24 episodes or whatever it is. And when you're hired as a director, you're coming in almost as a guest, a guest appearance on that show as a director, but you, but you're charged with making sure that you paint color within the lines, so to speak. So these are the lines you can color within it. You could change the colors a little bit, but it's still gotta be within these lines. If you go out of the lines a little bit, let's hope that it's something that they like because they're hiring you for a reason because they want what you bring to it. So what is it that I bring that you want that's different than director A or B or C, you know? And then a lot of times what happens is certain episodes are specifically, like directors are hired specifically for certain episodes based on how they're written, based on some of the tone of the episode. They say, you know, if it's an action episode, they might 
get a act a, a director that does more action stuff or you know that that's kind of how that works in a way but the writer rules television how do you, how do you like TV. it because you you I, let's you 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 do a lot of uh what ncis tell, do you tell did, people yeah. a lot of the type of episodes a lot of the shows you worked on so i've done uh i've done empire i've done ncis la um uh, all american um tales with irv um uh, the Quad. Uh, I just did the show called City on a Hill for Showtime, um, and I'm doing Black Lightning right now. So um, it's a, it's 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 pretty much the same. The one thing I love about TV is that when you come in, everything you need is there. There's no questioning. You might say, "Oh, I need a third camera." You ask the producers, "How many days we got three cameras? How many days we got Crane?" And they're going to tell you they have what is called a pattern. And the pattern is how much money they're going to spend for each episode. So if you say you got two crane days, two, three camera days, you know this and the prep is day for day. So if it's an eight day shoot, it's eight days of prep, nine days shoot, nine days of prep, so to speak. So you get a really long time to really organize everything and set everything up the way that it, it should be. You could talk to your DPs, meet with the actors. Um, get with the writers. Now, the one thing I will say, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, there's things that, um, and sometimes, a lot of times in the writing, even though it's a television script and it's going through network changes and all that, when you come on as a director, they they assume that you're going to make some changes and modify things in the script because the actors do it all the time. So as a director, you read a scene and you go, you know what, this doesn't feel, I just went through this on this on this show. And I said, man, this just doesn't feel right. So then you call the writer, explain yourself. This is why I don't think that this works. And then you have the conversation and they say either you're right or there's a reason why it's written this way. Right. You know, and then like for me, I've done like five or six episodes of Black Lightning. So if I call, I'm getting a little bit more like they appreciate it more than if I'd never done it before, you know. So, um. I would say TV, I love TV though. I do. I like it a lot because you can still be very creative. You can be very creative. Um, it's, it's the, it reminds me of our music video days where you have, it's a, it's not a full feature. It's a truncated amount of time, but there's a lot of storytelling that goes on and you can still be visually creative depending on what the show is and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. That's dope, man. I think for me, from my experience of, you know, just seeing how that whole uh, medium works is just the pacing is different, right? When you mm-hmm. when you do a film, you know, you shoot, depending on the budget, like 30, 30 to 60 days, depending on, again, on, on a film budget. But when it comes to television, they block it, they block it um, depending on how the episode, sometimes they do two, two blocks in one run or one block. But the I guess the true challenge for that is getting your pages and just just getting it's getting your, your pages, yeah, yeah, getting you like like a show like NCIS LA like they've been together twelve years. So when we go in and you see those scenes where it's just like talk and they explain this stuff, those things are usually one take. Like you get your camera, your master, they one take unless one of the actor says something or flubs a line or whatever. You do it again, then you move in for the close up, boom, and you out. I want to get that done so I can get to the to shooting and. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the wild out. That's what that's how that's how that moves. And they appreciate that too. Because, you know, if they've if they've studied and know the dialogue, especially in a show like that, they in pocket, man. You don't have to 
you know, how did you feel when you said that the guy was kidnapped and if they didn't just, (laughs) you're just giving information, you know? Yeah. It's a great, it's a great, at that, at that stage, especially for a show like that has been on for so many years, had Mm -hmm. had so many seasons. It's it's literally a greased wheel that you're just coming Mm -hmm. in and you're just plugging and playing. But then when you're doing something like empire where you're world building, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a different story because now you're 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 building the world. Who are these characters? What's their energy? Mm-hmm. What's their what's their voice? What's their tone? What's their feel? So that takes a little bit more time in dissecting yeah. and and a little bit more development, right? So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a different thing from like it's it's one thing going in after the house is built, but it's another thing going in when you're working from the ground floor and then you're building yeah. from a blueprint and now you're help building those those building blocks, right? It's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um and and Benny, one thing we always like to do in our last two final questions of our show, mm-hmm. uh, we're always talking about the future. What's the future? What's the next uh, chapter for Benny Boom? You were mentioning uh, you were taking certain meetings about you know the Lewis project, but is there anything that you're eyeing? Is there like a, a dream project that you are like, man, I would love to make this movie or tell this story. Do you have something in development that you could share or not share? Or just, just curious to know, What's going on in your head and where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years in this business? Well, one thing I would, I want to make, tell some stories. You know, I see a lot of shows about Chicago and New York and LA and stuff. And I feel like, you know, this sort of back to the beginning of our whole conversation. I've been, you know, we've been around the world, man. You know what I'm saying? Like we shot in Africa, you know what I mean? Like we've been everywhere Um, in Brazil and everywhere else. It's like, but there's no place like home. You know, right. and I feel like there's so many stories about my home. And part of it is I want to inspire. And I think that's what that's what, when you go on, you have a success, a measure of success in your career. and You get to a certain point and it's like, what else can you do? OK, you definitely you, you have to do things for financial reasons, you know, creative reasons. Um, but then what are you giving back? What is the legacy? Nobody's going to remember how much money you earned when you, and the thing, what you give back is what people remember, the legacy, right? And so for me, I I want to be able to give and tell stories that were the stories that, that connected directly to me growing up, because a lot of those people and kids are still in those same circumstances. So then my legacy is, oh yeah, he was this and he was that, but do you remember the time when they shot the such and such in Philly and 30 people got jobs, you know, right. on the set that had never worked in a business before. Those are the things that, that, that I think my responsibility are at this point, though. That's one thing. The other thing on a creative level is to be able to write my own ticket. You know, this is what we want to do. You want to be able to find a book, get the book, get a writer, find the money, put it together, and go and get it done yourself. You know, that's the, that's the next level of stuff. And then people respect you as not just a a director or a filmmaker. And you put that other producer hat on and stuff like that. Those are the things for me, future wise that I'm, that I'm looking to do. And I think all of the experiences that we've gone through have, have prepared me for, for this moment, for that, for, you know, for that future. It's amazing, man. Um, what are your favorite rituals that recharge your creativity? Um, my favorite rituals, 
Well, praying is a big ritual for me, you know, and I know people say it all the time. Oh, I pray, pray. No, but like for real, you know, and I, I like, I know X is, is, is to, into meditation and, and, you know, and that's a ritual for him. And for me, it's like connecting with God, with a higher power and really thinking about where are we? And I think more, more so definitely this last year of things than any other time in my life. And I would say everybody because of COVID and all the stuff that's been happening, um, that if you haven't taken time out to be introspective and pray and listen for the answer and watch for the answer, then you just wasted a whole year. You know, people have died over this, during this time of coronavirus. Like people have lost family members. Um, people have lost jobs that don't have jobs that still don't, that still are not working. And so I think for us that are, we're fortunate enough to be in this position, um, to be working, to be able to be creative, to earn money, to be able to, I think, deliver something that people during this pandemic want. They want TV, they want music videos, they want an outlet, they want entertainment. And that's right. our job is to deliver that. So we're privileged in that fact. So I think that um, the recharging happens with praying. The, also, the recharging happens with just totally disconnecting, man, like disconnecting from stuff. The recharging happens with me going from director to family man, spending time with my kids, with my wife, and just sort of being an everyday person and trying to stay in that world. Um, and that's really how it happens. You know, there was a time when the recharge would be watching a thousand movies or opening magazines and trying to, you know, and, and all that stuff. Uh, and not to say I don't still do that, but that's not my go. That's not my go-to anymore. That's not my, that's not my recharge, creative recharge anymore. Right. You know, it's just, it's just not, I'll, I'll definitely will watch film and TV for specific reasons. Um, if it's a director who I like or an actor who I like, and I go, yeah, I want to see what they did and, and, and sort of, you know, study that, but it's not what recharges me creatively. Got it. To your point, you just mentioned about like, you know, watching certain um, actors and pieces of work for research material. Um, is there anything that you could recommend, like as of late, like one dope short form piece uh, that you recently enjoyed? If it's a music video, commercial, short film, branded content, just something that you've seen as um, of late that's been like, Yo, that's just fucking dope and kind of made me like, man, I need to oh, get back man. in that ring again. Yeah. It's funny because I, I served on a jury for this um, for this festival over the coronavirus period and, and I was, um, and I judged the shorts, like the, the uh, short, first time director shorts and it was some great, great short films in there, man. I can't, I, it's unfortunate, I can't think off the top of my head what the name of some of the films were. But one film that stood out in particular was about this woman who was um, a teacher during a mass shooting at a school. And this thing was, this, it was done so well. You never saw the shooting, you heard it, but it was about the panic of these kids in the classroom and how she was able to, um, keep them calm and what what she did as a teacher to sacrifice for these children That's and this amazing. was the film was like 17 minutes long and i'm telling you i i was terrified watching this movie 
because I felt like if that was my kids in the class or if I was in the class or and it was crazy, like the way the sound design, they had the machine guns going off and you heard screen, like it was just done so well. And I, I, damn, I can't remember the name of it, um, but actually, you know, I voted for it um, as my favorite film in that group. And um, man, it was just, it was, it was so poignant. Um, as far as um, like, uh, you know, of course there's film, feature films that are out that I've seen that I like a lot. Actually, I actually just finished producing a film for a young director um, out of Texas. And the film is called Tasmanian Devil. And it's a feature film about a kid from Nigeria who moves to America to live with his dad. And um, he goes to an HBCU and pledges a fraternity. So the deeper context of it and the reason why I got involved with the film is because here was a, was a throwback to me thinking about my relationship at a certain age with my father right. and him and this kid, they have a really not great relationship, but he still loves this guy. And the, and the father is a missionary and he's all about the church and God. But then he realizes that the dad has so many flaws, you know what I mean? <laughs> that you wouldn't think. So the film deals with faith. It deals with, um, it deals with the, the black experience, but not, the American experience as we know it. And I mean, you know, you guys being West Indian understand like that experience of, of, of trying to, I would say assimilate, but you've grown up in Canada and everybody around you is the same culture right. or, 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 or similar. So this character, he comes to Texas of all places as an African immigrant and then goes to an HBCU where he's looked at as an African immigrant, not as a, <laughs> black hit so um it's a cool film it's a first time director um and we just the film is now available on on all the streaming platforms and stuff did it for like under a million dollars and and he just did an exceptional job exceptional job um abraham atta who was in the beast of no nation was, oh, wow. the, was the lead in it yeah he was the kid in beast he's the, he's the lead um natare who is in um, the show uh, The Shy. He plays the older guy in The Shy, ball-headed. Um, he's the father in the film. So it's a really good film, and I think the themes of it are not, because you don't have to have pledged, you don't have to have gone to an HBCU, but you will understand the, di the family dynamic of it all. Um, the father-son relationship can be translated into a father-daughter or a son-mother relationship in terms of someone watching and connecting to itself. So. That would that's be incredible, it, yeah. man. Well, yeah. listen, Benny, again, I wanted to say, man, from from <laughs> X and Dean and I, thank you so much. Um, yeah, man. Thank you, guys. Taking the time to talk to us. And again, so proud of you, man, seeing you come up from the States thank you, of man. West Philly to yeah, man. You know, thank you. making movies and directing television. You know, we stay watching you and hence why we wanted to get you on the show to have this conversation and to give your roses and to acknowledge the amazing work that you've been doing for such a long time, you know, continuously making stories that shifts culture. And, and I love your passion for the work, always respected you, you know, as a, as a black man to, you know, black man to black man and really, really mm -hmm. just happy, man. And again, thank you. And, uh, yo man, just stay, stay rocking it. And we're looking forward to seeing the next chapter in your, in your filmmaking career. Thank you, brother. And y'all, and you guys too, man, and what you guys are doing, you know, putting out, not only the, the stuff that you're doing, but creating Fela and, and 
all the stuff that's coming from this, the Karina's of it all, and all the stuff is just like, it's all groundbreaking things, you know? Um, and, and, and I'm glad to say that I was a part of, we all were students together at one time, just literally just trying to figure it out. We had no plans. We didn't know if it was gonna work. We didn't know if people were gonna hire us to do videos. We didn't know <laughs> if the video was good or if it was bad. We might've loved it, but the label might not have liked it. But we kept pushing the support that we all gave each other um, through those times. I had a, a conversation on another uh, thing about those our early days and everybody's early days. And I was, you know, I reminded, you know, told people like there was a time where, you know, I would be working on something and I turn around and Chris Robinson is there, but it ain't his video. He's there the whole day in the extra shooting or, you know what I mean? <laughs> or to say vice versa, you know, like those things will happen or Dave Myers would come to New York and shoot a video and we right there just, just soaking up game. Cause Dave was in the, you know what I'm saying? Cause Dave was there and we knew like the big lights was coming out. We knew this was going to happen. So we, we there trying to soak up game. And then once we all were in a, a place where we were just busy working, that we all helped each other. I told the story about um, I Need a Girl Part Two, and how we did not have, we had, the, the video was so big that we had one day to shoot it, it rained, and X came and said, give me a camera. And here, I need this, 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 and this. And he just went off and basically shot half the video. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? It's I like even, I don't even know that yeah, story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then, oh yeah. We like man, they gave me a they gave me a bag with a hole in it. Like this is what you gotta do. <laughs> it's like it, right, right? And it was like, this is what you gotta do. And that, you know, and, and, and being able to um and being able to be there. And it, it, um you don't have to call, right? I had directed a few things and X was like, yo, I want you to come and shoot second unit for me. Now, anybody else would have been directing and be like, I'm not shooting no second unit. But no, this is my brother. Like, my mindset was like, yo, my brother called. He got shots he needs. What you need me to do? Right. And, and we right there. So that, that for me, I carry that into this level of it as well. I'm trying to give back, trying to find young directors like you guys have, trying to find some younger directors that, that I can impart some wisdom on and give them some guidance and stuff like that. So th those are the things that I'm, actively doing right now along with the the things that help edify my career so to speak i'm trying to bring along other things incredible man it's incredible man well like i said man we're watching you grow and uh we're loving it and we have so much respect for your brother and like i said let's keep this conversation going you know the struggle is real but it's like we're gonna keep breaking down these barriers so like i said the future x the future benny the future karina coming up after us uh there'll be a platform and then we'll be in the positions where like the tyler perry's and and the will packards to be hey man you want to make a movie how much you need we got you how much Boom. you need that's you it you know what i mean yeah that's it and and what's your vision we're gonna support you because we know what it's like when you're being handcuffed you're not a hired gun we want you to be free to create here's your canvas go fucking paint right that's that's right that's our that's our mindset man and and to me it's like I, like I said, like I literally came up with you guys in this business, like from yeah, his executive assistant now to his manager to business partner, nice. you know, so that's like, the growth. that's how it's supposed to be. It's, it's the growth, man. So like I said, that's why we had to get you on the show because you're a part of our DNA. You're a part of the brick that we put into this pyramid that we built today. So 
Mad love, yeah. mad respect, brother. Thank you, man. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Bless, bless. Woo! Benny, Benny, boom. Brother, brother, brother. That was a wild one, man. Thank you for taking us on that um, trip on memory lane. That was just, it was wild, man. The come up game is real. As always, I'd like to recommend a kick-ass piece of content that y'all need to check out. And this recommendation is going to be for a film, a French film called Mazarin. It's about the French gangster Jacques Mazarin. And it was directed by Jean-Francois Richette. And it's a two-parter. The first one's Killer Instinct, and the other one is Public Enemy Number One. It's been compared to many times to um, Brian De Palma's Scarface. The acting is superb, man. It stars Vincent Cassel. He portrays the life of uh, Jacques Mazzarine, and uh, he really takes it to another level, man. Check it out. Really great film, and uh, you're going to enjoy it. It came out in 2008. Great film. If you liked the episode, please feel free to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And as always, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Architects Pod. And hey, you can always, 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 always message us to let us know who you want to hear on the show. All right? Architects is created by Fella and produced in partnership with Curious Cast. Our theme music and audio production are by Oso Audio. See you next time. Peace.